Heavenly Father, this morning again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning your word speaks witness to our hearts of things that we no longer see with our eyes, but we believe, we trust, we place our faith in through the witness and the testimony, the authority of the Scriptures. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that your church would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that we would be sure of our confidence because of the authority and the witness of your Word, and that, Lord, you would work in those of us who are struggling in doubt or perhaps even unbelief, for those who are walking ongoingly in their sin apart from faith in Christ, Lord, that you would save, that you would take a people who may be here for other reasons, that you would gaze at us and give us what we didn't even ask for, that you would grant faith this morning to repent and believe the gospel. And Lord, if you would do that in our midst this morning, it's miracle. And we would all rejoice at the leaping with joy of the one who is saved. Lord, we pray that you would do this in our midst this morning. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus, that powerful name, the name that is the object of our faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Acts has been a pretty amazing book so far. A number of amazing things have taken place during the course of just these first three chapters. Miraculous events, unexpected happenings, none of which in any way could be attributed to the orchestration, to the design and the plan, the strategy of the disciples, the apostles, of of anyone who is trying to make much of themselves. These things are coming upon them. They're being sent. They're being filled. They are a people who have God working in their midst. What's become clear to me as I've been reading and studying the book of Acts for these past few months is that the central purpose of Luke, the author of this book of Acts, the central purpose of the recording of these early chapters of the Scriptures, and particularly this episode in chapter 3, this episode of Scripture, is that the author of Luke, or author of Acts, Luke, is establishing the authority of the apostles to proclaim the power of Jesus to save from sin. So the Lord God, the Holy Spirit of God, is using His gospel writer Luke now writing Acts to establish the authority of the apostles to proclaim the authority of the Christ. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage, basically verse by verse again. We're going to see a number of ways that the Lord is establishing the authority of the apostles that we might have confidence in their testimony, their testimony about the gospel of Jesus. The first thing that we see, if you look at verse 1, is now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. They're going to the temple to pray. And I'm wondering, that's interesting. They're going to the temple. 
What are the apostles of Jesus Christ doing going to the temple where the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in the Christ that they are to proclaim? Right? What are they, why are they going to the temple to pray? Why are the apostles of the Christian faith going to the Jewish temple to pray? I believe in this simple detail, among many others scattered throughout Acts, we will discover that Christianity is not a diversion from the ancient, true, biblical religion. I want to take a moment to to unpack that for a second and, and notice these things as we see them in the book of Acts. Christianity is not a veering off from what is true, right, and biblical and good in the Jewish practice that came before the incarnation of Jesus. It's not entirely true to say that Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the Christian church. If we understand, if we're to understand Christianity, we must first understand that it flows directly from and is a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. But what we understand from the apostles is that that which was revealed among the Jewish people in the Old Testament and recorded for us, preserved for us in the Scriptures is that God so loved the world that God's intention is to bless all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. The mystery of the gospel, Ephesians says, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's what I want us to see. As we gather here in an elementary school cafeteria, right? we don't do a whole lot to hide that fact, right? we got to remember that God instructed the building of a temple. Do we remember that? Do we remember that David and Solomon longed for the presence of God in the temple? That the prophets, they often spoke from and about the temple. Jesus taught in the temple. The apostles, in our text this morning, they prayed in the temple. And now that the temple and almost all the religious practice that surrounded it are destroyed in accordance with the Scriptures, God has made His home with His people by His Spirit. Do you hear what happens? That is the great gift of the Gospel. This is the good news for the people of God in every time, in every place, from every family, from every ethnos, from every ethnicity of the earth. This is the good news, the great gift of the gospel. There is now no longer a mediator between us and God except Christ Jesus, who is himself God. And by the Holy Spirit of God, he has made his home. He's manifest his presence among us. Therefore, it is right to say that we together, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we gather as the temple to pray. 
I just want to take a moment as we read of the apostles going up to the temple to pray to encourage us to this one thing, that we would celebrate the very real roots of our faith, the temple, the scriptures, the ancient Jewish people, those things that were faithful religious practice according to the scriptures. It is by these ancient realities that we know the true and eternal temple. You see, it's, it's by the practice and the establishment of the temple and then Jesus' death and resurrection to, to fulfill all of the practice that were insufficient in the temple. In Himself, it is through these ancient realities that the true and eternal temple, who is Jesus Christ, is made known to us. He and all who are in Him will never be destroyed. And so we would do well to remember how we arrive at Christ. It's in His presence and by means of His gospel alone that we have fullness of joy. That is not the main point of this text. It's not the main point of the sermon, but I can't miss it. I can't. There's something in me that says, in, in my upbringing in the United States of America, paying attention mostly to the New Testament, ignoring often ignorant at least of most of the whole of the Scriptures, i.e. the Old Testament, that I make note that it strikes me as weird that they went to the temple. But they remember, they remember where their faith comes from. And they now get to celebrate right there in the gate that their faith has been fulfilled in Christ. There's another thing that's amazing. Again, it's not the main point of the text. It's in the first four words. Now Peter and John. Peter and John. And what are they doing? They're going up to the temple, which is interesting. Almost every word of the story is incredible. It's no small thing that Peter and John are here walking in broad daylight in Jerusalem. Let's remember where they were not even two months before the events of Acts chapter 3. When Jesus was arrested, John fled in a panic recorded in his own gospel, and it says that he left his undergarment behind and fled naked. And now, assuming he's fully clothed again, he's in Jerusalem in public. No longer afraid, but bold in proclamation of the Jesus. Peter, now he managed to keep his clothes on those months ago, but he lost any sense of integrity as he stood and denied Jesus in the courtyard where he was being interrogated. And here he is, not denying Jesus, but proclaiming Jesus. Peter and John in the temple, in a public place, proclaiming the one that they so recently fled from, and then they saw him raised. Here we are. Here they are walking together publicly. We're going to see more on their open declaration of Jesus in the verses to come. Another little detail, verse 2. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Now, all the gates of the temple were beautiful. 
But this gate gets the word beautiful for its name, if that tells you anything about the nature of this gate. And so I can't help but uh, make note of the irony that's taking place here. When, when Peter says, no silver or gold do I have for you, they're standing in a gate, and one man's lying in a gate, that's plated with silver and gold. There's an irony that's in this passage. What a contrast. A crippled beggar asking for alms in the beautiful gate. In verse 4, it says, Peter directed his gaze at the lame man. Now, I don't want to get hung up here either. I don't think it's the main point of the text. But it does get repeated three times. The passage says, Peter directed his gaze, as did John, And their instruction to the lame man was, look at us. And the response is, he fixed his attention on them. There is a very real lift up your eyes call in this passage. There is a personal interaction that takes place because they actually saw each other. I wonder how many priests and religious leaders and devout persons walked by. Sure, they gave their alms as they were instructed according to the Scriptures, but they simply passed by and did not bother to fix their gaze. Now, I'm not saying that we have to give silver or gold everywhere we go and see a need. Not even Peter and John do that here, right? But we can at least make the effort to see the people who are around us. And I wonder, how uncomfortable must it have been to have gazed at the crippled man in the beautiful gate? How uncomfortable. Eye contact. Eye contact like that isn't easy. But the ministry of the gospel that Peter and John engage in is a personal face-to-face ministry. Now, I know Cross Point Coast. I know many of you are introverts like myself. Face-to-face, eye contact freaks us out, right? And maybe you're like, no, not at all. I'm actually quite extroverted. Well, great. Teach us, all right? (laughs) But no matter what, the fact is, the ministry of the gospel that we are about, no matter our disposition or our personality, is a ministry of face-to-face, eye contact level proclamation of the gospel. The bottom line is this, we are the face of the church. And the question for us is, are we taking the time to look anyone in the eyes and actually see their need for Christ? Now, Jesus, Jesus is what John and Peter see when they look at the crippled man. They see that this man needs Jesus and what they have, they give to this man. The passage is very clear. What they give is Jesus. Look at verse 6 with me. Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What I do have I give to you. Now the crippled man, he has a very real felt need in that moment. And Peter and John don't meet it. He needs alms. He asks for alms. Now, if they had silver and gold, maybe they would have given it to him. We aren't told. We're just told that they didn't have silver or gold that day. 
Rather, what the story does tell us is they enter very personally into this man's real life to ultimately bring this man to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we see in verse 8 is this man receives something that he wasn't even asking for. Look at verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What a scene that must have been. I mean, the beggar was just outside asking for alms, and now he's inside dancing in the courts of the temple. What a scene. The question that I have as I I read the text, and I've had this question for, for many years, and this week was a wonderful opportunity to study the text more closely and to see it within the context of the whole of Acts. What does the healing of this crippled man have to do with the gospel? God did not have to do this. Luke didn't have to record this scripture for us, but he did. There's some purpose that this event and this text has for us this morning. The question, another way to ask it is, what is it that Peter is dispensing in this moment? Now, we all know, or we ought to know, that the gospel is not about the dispensing of gold and silver. We ought to know that if we paid any attention to the teachings of Jesus Christ. But do Peter's words here suggest that the gospel is all about the healing of the physical body? We don't have money to give you, but we can heal you. It would seem like that's the purpose. Let me ask this. If someone's sins are forgiven, how do you know? Are they cleaner? We say that their sins are washed clean. Their sins are blotted out. Do they look different? Do they glow? Do they leap for joy differently? If their sins are forgiven, you might say, no, they're just excited. How do you know that a person's sins are forgiven? It's an invisible reality, isn't it? And yet that's what the apostles are sent out by Jesus Christ to declare. The forgiveness of sins. And so what the apostles are sent out to declare is a declaration of an impossible-to-see reality. But if you tell a man, rise up and walk, and then he begins to leap for joy, you know something huge has happened here, don't you? Like, oh my goodness. That guy, I saw him when I walked in. I, I threw him a couple denarii, right? And now he's in the temple, and he's dancing around, leaping for joy. Something amazing has happened here. This story is extremely reminiscent of a story we actually looked at in our Christianity Explored study this past Thursday. Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Listen. And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. Even that detail is similar to what we have in our text this morning. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. You have to wonder if he scratched his head just like this man and said, dude, I just asked for alms. Dude, I just asked that you would heal me. And now you're giving me something I didn't even ask for. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, what does this man, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the deal. Jesus declares something, and if Jesus is who he said he is, it happened. <laughs> Do you believe that when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven? That that man's sins were forgiven? Do you believe that? Couldn't see it. He just laid there on his mat, right where his friends had dropped him down through the roof. And there he is, looking like a man like he did just a few moments ago. And so the Sadducees and the leaders question in their hearts. And they ask, who can forgive sin but God alone? Clearly this man's just like he was before. This guy's a charlatan, and more than that, he's a blasphemer. Jesus immediately, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questions within themselves, they said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But, and then we discover why he did what he did. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This invisible reality. This thing that actually happens when Jesus says it could happen, though you cannot see it happen. So that you could know that he has the authority to do what he says he's doing. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The passage goes on to say that he took his mat and walked out the front door, that it was too crowded to get in earlier, right? He walked out the front door in full view of everyone. And there is something far more astounding that happened in that room than that the people saw that Jesus can heal cripples. They're scratching their heads saying, perhaps if this man can do that, He can forgive sin. Perhaps the good news that this Christ is declaring is true. I share that story because it is so similar to the testimony that is being born about these apostles. The miracle in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 3 isn't a declaration that all sick and lame may be healed. It's nothing less than a demonstration of the power of God that he is able to do and will do what is proclaimed in the gospel that's preached by the apostles. And what is preached there is a demonstration that he can and will forgive sins. What's happening in the first chapters of this book of Acts is the Holy Spirit is establishing the testimony of the apostles about the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin by grace through faith. We can have confidence that this is the purpose of God in this miracle because of what Peter goes on to preach. What does he go on to preach? Just like in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and it's this amazing event. He doesn't go out and say, you can have that amazing event happen to you too. No, Peter stands up and begins to preach about Jesus, his death and resurrection, and that you must repent and believe. That's the message of Acts. And here we are in chapter 3, this amazing Uh, miraculous healing takes place. And Peter doesn't then go into the streets and say, you can be healed too. 
He immediately goes about the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin by grace through faith. That is the testimony that Acts is establishing in the apostles' teaching. It's all about the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. Verse 10 says, they were filled with wonder and amazement. This sentence sums up and sets up the remainder of the passage and the main remainder of the sermon this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to spend the remainder of our time preaching the gospel with Peter. We're going to let P- Peter preach the gospel to us this morning. I want to begin by asking again this question. It's the central question of the text. Why did Luke record this miracle in this sermon? Luke, he's the author of Acts. Luke is reinforcing a vivid point that's been make, he's been making this point since the beginning of this book, and he's actually been making this point since the beginning of his previous book, the Gospel of Luke. The apostles' teaching didn't originate with the apostles. I'm going to say it again. This is so important. The apostles' teaching, to which we are devoted, did not originate with the apostles. The apostles are nobodies. They could be charlatans for all we know. Unless there is some testimony, some witness, that the testimony that they bear doesn't originate in themselves. The power and the authority of the apostles' preaching doesn't reside in the apostles themselves, but in the Holy Spirit who alone brings forgiveness and salvation. The the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the testimony that the apostles are pointing to. They're pointing to the fact that Jesus is alive. He's raised from the dead. So the truth of the Gospel is a truth about reality. The truth of the Gospel is not the truth about our hopefulness. The truth of the gospel is not a truth about our our faith. The gospel is my faith. The truth of the gospel is the truth of reality. It is that which is actually true and therefore is the ground and object of our faith. If all this is true, then forgiveness of sin is only through faith in Jesus. Verse 12. When Peter saw... And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? I'm like, because this guy used to be crippled and then he's jumping around in the temple? Like, that's why. Why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us? Oh, as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Do you see the argument that's being made? Do you see what Luke is recording from what Peter has spoken here? They're wondering at Peter and John. Not our piety, not our power. The purpose of the miracle, Peter bears witness, isn't to bear witness to the power and the authority and the wisdom and the righteousness of Peter and John and the apostles. The purpose of the miracle is to draw attention to the reality that sins may actually be forgiven by Jesus Christ. His name The passage says, His name has made this man strong. This very visible healing is in the name of one we no longer see. You couldn't see Jesus anymore. Jesus 
the servant of the Lord, the passage says, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob raised from the dead, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. This Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended into the heavenly places. And the, the apostles say, we are witnesses to these things. So the healing, the miracle, all of this is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is alive, He is powerful, and the the testimony of the apostles is about Him, and it's authoritative, powerful, and true. Verse 16. And in and His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I want you to notice what makes this man well. It's the name of Jesus that heals. It's by faith that this man is united to the power and authority that is in the name of Jesus. But it is the name of Jesus that heals. It reminds me of 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 21, a good passage to write in the margin of your text here about the name. 1 Peter 1, 21. It says, your faith and hope are in God. Now there's a warning and a caution for us, even in some of the ways that we talk about our faith and hope. Your faith and hope are not in the depth of your faith. Your faith and hope are not that you have faith enough. Your faith and hope are not that you are confident in your hope, that you are confident enough. Our faith has an object. Our faith is not a leap across thin air. Our faith is standing firm on a firm foundation that has authoritative witness and the demonstration of power. Our faith doesn't build a bridge Our faith rests on a cross, a real cross on which a real man who claimed to be God lived a sinless life in the midst of the people, a cross that he actually died on in an empty tomb, a real tomb and an empty one in which the Christ was laid and in which he walked out of. A Christ who is seen by many. This is the object of our faith. A Christ who is raised and is now demonstrating His power by means of His Spirit right in the midst of the people of Jerusalem. By faith in His name, your sins are forgiven. Now there's some very interesting things that Peter says here. I think some very generous things in much the same way as Jesus was generous. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. They were ignorant, but they were not without fault. They were ignorant because they ignored. Jesus himself on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They knew exactly what they were doing, but they ignored what they should have known. Friends, that's a caution for us. You can act like a fool, it's possible. You can act ignorant. It's possible, even though you know. They ought to have known. They ought to have known from the prophets. They ought to have known from the teachings that they had memorized about the coming of the suffering servant. 
They ought to have known, and yet they were ignorant. Verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. What God foretold, He thus fulfilled. That's the order of things. He said that His Christ would suffer. The Gospel deals with the calamity of our sin through the suffering sacrifice of Jesus in our place. This is the Gospel. We have a suffering servant of the Lord God who is sent on in our behalf to live a perfect life that you and I did not live, to die on the cross in our place, to die a sufficient death that you and I could not have died but remain dead. And He rose where you and I would still be in the grave. So that all who place their faith in Him, who would trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins that He has declared would be saved by means of His sacrifice and might have life in Him, hope of the presence of God forever. Here's how Peter says it. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. Times of refreshing. It reminds me of the river of delights we spoke about earlier in the service. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Luke now is coming to the climax, the point of his telling of the entire event. Peter is about to call his hearers to place their entire faith, their entire hope in something that is utterly invisible to the senses. They do not see Jesus in that moment and they will not see their sins be forgiven. Now, Jesus isn't invisible. The apostles saw Him along with hundreds of others that saw Him after His resurrection. But following the resurrection, He is now ascended into the heavenly places so that no one can see Him any longer in this present age, but we believe based on the witness of the apostles that are being established for us in these pages. And so we are without excuse. The eyewitness account and the bearing witness to the gospel that is found in these chapters. You can't see your sins get forgiven, but you can see a man get up and walk. And we have that witness. We have that testimony. The apostles are witnesses to the resurrection. He is alive. And everyone in the temple that day saw the healing of a man lame from birth. You can't see your sins blotted out or your name written in the book of life, but we join the apostles in bearing witness that Jesus is raised from the dead and so all who place their faith in Him have eternal life. So this invisible reality is attested to in the book of Acts by many signs and wonders. And then it's recorded for us, establishing our confidence that our sins are actually forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is as real as a lame man leaping for joy. We're given further confidence. Look at verse 21. In the second half of verse 21, it speaks about what God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. The apostles point to the Old Testament Scriptures to bear witness to the reality of the Gospel in much the same way that you and I now look to the New Testament Scriptures as well for that same confidence and authority. We look there that our hope would stand firm on the eyewitness testimony. Moses said, 
Peter says. Samuel and all the prophets proclaimed, the passage says. God himself said to Abraham, and then he records this, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now God has spoken through the resurrection of Jesus. Why has he spoken? Why has he borne witness? Why has he established this testimony that you and I with confidence would have confidence that by means of the name of Jesus alone, by means of his cross and his resurrection, your sins may be forgiven. That's the center of the gospel, that you would in faith and hope and confidence turn and be forgiven. There is much that is extremely clear in this passage. There's much that is being established as clear, factual, true, historical reality. And what is being established is ultimately on the basis of that evidence that sins may actually be forgiven. That when you cry out in repentance and faith that is granted to you, in that moment, you're washed. You're clean. The gospel gives us Jesus. The gospels give us Jesus, who is the Lord of all and the Savior of sinners. The the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they bear witness to this Jesus. They bear witness to the fact that we must repent of sin and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus that is recorded in those scriptures. And this is the only way by which sinners may be forgiven of sin. It's a call not to ignore no longer the, the testimony, the truth of the scriptures. And then Acts comes along. And this book gives us the apostles who have the name of Jesus. There's a truth that happens in this passage, and it's, it's a bit of a parable, really. It's a testimony of a man who has no means by which to walk, asking for simply a way to live another day. And a preacher of the gospel coming along and declaring something that is true over them. And then the Holy Spirit of God giving them something that they didn't even ask And that man standing up in a way that he never could have on his own and leaping for joy in praise of the Lord. Friends, that is the story of those who repent and believe. Many of us, we come and we're asking for lots of help regarding a lot of things. But we're not even asking for the right things so very often. And the gospel is preached over us and a faith is granted to us that we didn't even ask for. And we find ourselves by the gift of grace applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves lame on our own, leaping for joy to the praise of the glory of our God. Brothers and sisters, I hope that would be all of our story, particularly if it is you who have not yet turned and believed in this testimony. That this morning is the morning to believe. This morning is the morning to turn from your sin, place your faith in Jesus, have your sins blotted out, be forgiven and given new life in Him. And trust me, you will leap for joy because your sins are actually forgiven.
and the testimony for all who are gathered, that that is our story. We are a people on our own, crippled and lame from birth. Ought we, therefore, to leap for joy? Let us not forget, just because perhaps we've been walking for a while, Perhaps it's been a while since that miracle occurred in our hearts, that forgiveness and that grace. Perhaps we might not forget to leap for joy and to join with the apostles in gazing the eyes of those who are around us to preach the truth of that gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you that for the name of Jesus in whom is the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the authority of this testimony, the the incredibly well-crafted nature of this book. Your Spirit has clearly inspired the writer Luke. Your Spirit clearly moved among your apostles. So that which is this gospel that the apostles preach is not theirs first. It's yours Lord, I pray that you would preach that gospel to every heart gathered this morning, that we would turn and believe, that we would be saved or we would be established further in the confidence that is in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that sins are actually forgiven. Lord, we pray that you would establish us in that, that this morning we would See how incredible of a reality that is so that we would be moved in generosity to share that gospel with our communities. Lord, our desire is that all of Brevard County would leap for joy. Lord, we pray that you would save the lost in our midst and that we would rejoice that we too were once lame, but now we leap for joy at the glory of the grace of our God. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in the name, that name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.